With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome everyone to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carasella, and with me for today's roundtable is my regular co-host, Hi C. Lutmers. Hello. Uh, and standing in for Mildred Lynn McDonald, who's not available to be with us today, I've invited Annette Wagner. Annette, welcome. Thank you. Hello. And Amalia Dillon. M- Molly, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and for, for those of you who don't remember Annette, Annette's a friend of the show and has been on with me before. Annette is a intentional creativity teacher and a visionary artist herself. And Amalia, full disclosure, she is my niece, and she is also the author of the Fate of the Gods trilogy, an, an excellent series, and I recommend it. So what we're here to talk about today is creativity and the nature of a creative block or or resistance. And uh, later on in the show, we're going to hear a conversation between myself and Stuart Cubley, who runs a kind of creativity workshop that he does through painting. And it's it's very different from the kinds of things that Annette does because it's completely unintentional. <laughs> and so we're going we're gonna to explore some very interesting terrain there. But I know that for me, there is a an aspect of creativity that can be very challenging. Uh, and it's for me, it doesn't happen all the time. And it doesn't happen very often in in sort of like the momentary I want to try something creative process but rather in the in the creative process that happens when I'm when I'm working on something 
uh, over time, right? Like, like when I'm working on the show, for example, there's something that I need to do regularly, and sometimes I just get I just get stuck, and I'm wondering what is the nature of that stuckness, if from any perspective that you guys would care to share, and what do you do about it? So creativity, the resistance that 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 happens in the presence of an intention to be creative, and what do you do about it? Anybody want to jump in? Uh, I I can. Okay. For me, I it's less about uh, becoming blocked and more about kind of losing focus. I find that creativity for me, the best way to continue forward and continue moving and and creating is discipline, which maybe seems a little bit backwards. But I find that when I dedicate myself to writing every single day, then every single day it becomes easier to write. Hmm. So what does it feel like when you're, when you're stuck? Have you explored that? What is that? It feels like, well, I, when I'm not writing, I'm very cranky. Um, <laughs> Heads up, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and, and that's that's what it is. Is just I'm choosing not to write and not to focus on writing. And when and once I say, oh well, I haven't written in however many days, and then I sit down to write, things open back up again. So so for you, there isn't a what do you sometimes I've seen your posts on Facebook and whatnot where you're feeling like the work you're producing is not. Is not in the flow. Yes, but that but that is not the same. I think to like compared to what people usually talk about with writer's block, where they feel like abandoned by their muse, or they're uninspired, or or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. That isn't that for me. I don't have that struggle anymore. Anymore. And how did you make it go away? <laughs> how did you vanquish that struggle? Discipline. Discipline. Daily writing. Oh, man. Who wants to hear that? <laughs> I know. I know. I told you that my feelings would be a little bit different. But that's really the that was the real huge breakthrough for me is that once I realized that I had to just sit down and write every day, whether I was inspired or not, whether it felt like I was on the right track immediately or I needed to slog through some words that were maybe garbage. I mean, that's okay as long as I'm writing every day. Mm. Okay. Annette, how about you? What, what, do you, what happens for – do you experience creative block? If, and if so, what does it feel like? Um, well, now that's an interesting question because I would say yes and then I would say no. So I identify with um, what Amalia is saying about discipline. There is an element of creativity where I have a, a creative practice that I engage in almost every single day. And that does enable me to keep the creativity flowing in my life. But there is also another level. When we talk about what a creative block is, I think we have to kind of take the layers off and dig into it a little bit. Are we talking about the motivation to get off our butt and go out in the studio or engage with the keyboard? Or are we talking about what happens when we're faced with a painting that's not giving us any clear indication of where it wants to go next? 
or it's asking us to do something that we're having very clear resistance to. Hmm. And so for me, it, it's really na- the nature of what am I creating and what am I, how am I in relationship to what I am creating? And when I run into something that feels like it's not flowing, then I start asking questions like, what's my intention? And I start saying, asking myself inquiries. What wants to emerge here? You know, what, why am I resisting? What, am I resisting something specific? And I start playing with things. And I've gotten better about getting a sense of, um, like I have a painting that was out on my easel. And there's these interesting points where paintings will sometimes just simply stop. And they don't want me to paint them. And I'll be paying attention to the rest of life and, and realizing that I've allowed my focus to come off of the painting. And then I'll go back out and I'll put my focus back on the painting. And the whole thing has shifted and it wants something else done. And sometimes it takes a little while for that to emerge. And you simply have to be patient with it. And you have to allow what wants to emerge to emerge in its own time and space. Sometimes, however, it's also something internal that I'm engaging with where the painting is taking me into an area that I don't want to deal with. Like recently, some of my paintings have had both masculine and feminine figures in them. And if you know my work at all, I generally paint feminine figures um, in various, you know, shamanic, whatever, symbolic um, relationships to the earth. And that has triggered some places where I'm the one resisting going out being creative. And so I have to ask myself and have a conversation with, you know, why is this coming up and why am I having this kind of resistance? So I don't think of it as blocks as much. It is, I suppose, in some physical sense. But to me, it's all about how, where am I in relationship to my creativity and the flow of creativity coming through me and onto the canvas or the piece of paper or the sculpture or whatever it is I happen to be doing. So I want to explore that a little bit more. Where are you in relationship to your creativity? Uh, and, and I guess, you know, you, you highlighted like three phases, right? One is the where you're not in right relationship with your creativity because you're sitting on your butt and you don't actually want to get off your butt and go into the studio. One is you're in the studio, but you're confronted by the canvas and you don't feel inspired. And the third is the painting has stopped talking to you. Is that a fair summary? Yes. And I I would probably quibble a little bit with the second one in the sense of, um, I mean, there are points where I might go out and be inspired, but I don't know if that's so much a creative block. Um, But in general, yes, I agree with the three that you have come up with. All right. So, so let's, let's take a look at the, the, the the middle one and, and go into that a little bit more. You're, you're, you know you want to do something, you feel it's appropriate to do something, but you're just not, it's just not happening. What is the nature of that? What do you do then? So when somebody says they're not inspired, the first thing that comes to me as both a teacher and a coach and an artist is that they're, it goes back to relationship. Mm. They say they're not inspired, they say they want to go out and create, but in general what happens is they're not um, present right here, right now, and engaged with what wants to come through. It's like they're dancing all the way around it, but they're not actually engaged. And, and that's because when you're engaged, I've seen this so many times in teaching that it's, you know, I, I know this is when I can take somebody and sit them down and ground them and 
take them on a visioning and get them in touch with the material, the wisdom that's inside of themselves, inside of their heart, and get them in touch with that and engage their right brain and their left brain so that they're going back and forth between those two places, inspiration just comes. They have more than they need for what they're going to try and put onto a piece of paper. It just flows through them. So to me, that's a place of saying, oh, I'm not being inspired. Then I tend to say, what are you not engaging with? How are you not engaging? Because the inspiration is there. It's a question of whether or not you have connected to it. Mm. Okay. And, so, go ahead, Molly. Um, I think that this is this also comes back to discipline too, in in disciplining yourself to be in the moment, and also because the more you exercise that discipline, the the easier it is to activate that inspirational element where Annette is talking about the right brain and the left brain interacting and connecting to the wisdom in inner wisdom that I think is practice makes perfect. Mm. Very true. So, so, so it's, I guess it feels to me like it's um, the more you sit and do, the more the connecting becomes, the more you realize where you're not connecting. And it's not really about not being inspired. It's about not being attentive to what inspiration is available. Well, and you begin to recognize what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that people in this culture don't typically have is they're not comfortable with their own creativity. And so they don't always recognize what it feels like when they're in sync with that connection to their inspiration and when they're out of sync with it. Like Amelia said something about, you know, she gets cranky when she isn't writing. Well, if I don't have a, a canvas on the easel, I'm a freaking crazy woman. And <laughs> no question about it. It's because I'm not actually there with an engaged and in connection. And I can feel that. Sometimes it takes me, you know, like a day, but there's a point where I will feel that and realize that every, everything's out of kink and I have to go back and I have to start something or create something or do something to get myself back into the place I need to be. Mm. Okay. All right, hi C. Help us out here. What, what's your take? <laughs> Come on, I know you do this stuff too. Um, well, sometimes I think the first question that somebody has to ask themselves is: Are they really experiencing a creative block, or are they using that as an excuse for procrastination? Yes. Because a block sometimes is just the term that's convenient to toss out there as a way to say, well. I probably should go and work on this, but I'm feeling really blocked right now, so probably nothing good would come out anyway. But that's really just an excuse to say, I don't feel like doing it right now. Um, and I would also say, you know, there's something, uh, there's a movement that I really like, and I just recently kind of found out about it. I'm not sure how long it's been around, but it's called process art. And it focuses more on just engaging in the process of rather than worrying about any particular output or goal or end product. And I think if people would be more willing, and you know, Annette said something about kind of how our culture is, I think our culture is also very goal-oriented. Yes, yes, <laughs> and yes. so if we can step away from creativity having to create something versus creativity simply being a process that we engage in and then Something may come out of that, but sometimes not. But really, there is something coming out of that, but it may just be something happening within us as a result of engaging in the process. Mm -hmm. Then we may actually not feel so blocked all of the time because we don't see it as I'm blocked because I don't know what the end product is going to look like versus 
I'm going to just go and engage in the process and not worry about what comes out. And sometimes that process, like for me, I know when I'm putting together like the radio shows and stuff, um, sometimes I pay attention if there, if I'm sitting down trying to do that and there's a block. I, I tend to work better when I feel like I have kind of a short deadline. I have that pressure. But um, if I'm feeling that block, sometimes that's saying, you know, don't do anything yet because there's something else, something new that's going to inform what this is going to be that you need to experience, come in contact with, whatever. So step away for right now so that that can happen because that will be the little thing that suddenly sparks and you'll want to run back and start to apply it. And the second thing that a lot of times for me in the, in the sense of that process is it's not always about the most glamorous creative side of the process. Sometimes it's the mechanical side. So if I'm feeling blocked, what I may decide to do is, well, let me just sit here with GarageBand and just start playing with effects and see what happens when I apply this effect and that effect to something. Mm. And I'll do that. And all of a sudden, I'll hear an effect and it'll immediately start this whole wave of, I know exactly how I could apply that. Oh, this would be great for that. Oh, now I want to go and do that. And oh, now suddenly I have an idea for three other shows because I want to apply this in some way or whatever. Mm. And so I think that when people can not get so caught up in inspiration, because I think that's been very mythologized. And if we're not feeling inspired or creating the most masterpiece work of art ever, we'd suddenly think that we're either blocked or it's not worth doing. Just engage in the process, even if it's just the mechanical process. You know, for me, I, I don't paint, but I'm thinking that maybe for a painter, it would be stop worrying about putting paint on canvas for that moment and go and just uh, organize your paint colors. Or go and just start washing your brushes because something may happen where you suddenly see a color you haven't thought of in a long time or the way the water goes through the brush that suddenly sparks that creativity and you want to run back and start doing that on the canvas as a result of being in that part of the process. Uh, Amalia, do you have those – Do you, uh, you sound like a very disciplined writer. Um, do you ever do the step away thing? Uh, if I'm struggling with a particular scene or what's going to come next, because I write free, like I I don't use a an outline or plot in advance. I find that that makes things harder for me. Uh, then I'll step back and talk to another author. Say this is what this is what's happening, and I'm not sure what comes next. And then usually I end up answering my own question. So in that in the in the midst of that conversation, yeah. Can, can I give a challenge to her? Oh, sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> so because sometimes I think it helps to actually step away from the the milieu that we're used to, and so I would actually encourage or challenge you to maybe sometimes when you step away, instead of going and asking another writer and talking to them about it. Go and ask someone that is completely different and outside of what you normally do. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because then you'll then you'll get um, an uninformed, uh, a non-expert expression of uh, a spontaneous expression. Oh, and you might think a thought that you've never thought before because you're talking to somebody who has absolutely no experience with what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. All right. Um, so, uh, does anybody have a like a thing that you do when you are feeling blocked, but like going out into nature or you know making yourself a cup of tea? Or is there is there any 
any trick that you might recommend that has worked for you or anything like that? For writers, well, the most frequent thing that we do that ha- that inspires or causes us to continue working and find our momentum again, take a shower. Take a shower. The ideas always come when you're in the shower and you can't write them down. <laughs> <laughs> and that, how about you? Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't have a particular thing. Um, sometimes I doodle. Sometimes I eat chocolate. Sometimes I wander around the house and torture my cats. Um <laughs> You know, it, it, I do a little bit of just, you know, I have to, but it's kind of like a shower in the sense of what I do is I take everything, stuff it into what I call the stew pot in the back of the brain, and I just let it cook for a while. Mm-hmm. Because eventually something will come out of it, and it probably won't be what I expect, but, you know, that's okay. Yeah. And um, and sometimes I have several pots cooking with different things in them, but I just, it, it's it's a combination of kind of taking a shower or taking a step away is just, I move sort of sideways mm-hmm. and I I just muse on it and take the emphasis of having to do something or it taking that should energy away from it and just let it be whatever it wants to be. Yeah. Hi C, how about you? Um a couple of things and some that are probably kind of similar to what was said, but one and for me is to break my routine. So if I normally sit at my desk and edit my show, but I feel like nothing's really happening or coming through, um, then it's like, okay, then grab the computer and go and sit at a cafe Mm -hmm. or grab the computer and go sit someplace else. Change that perspective, change that environment as a way to perhaps stimulate something that isn't there in the normal way of doing things. Um, And also, for me, it's always about learning something uh, new. So and, and not necessarily about like what I'm doing, like not just learning something new of how to do something in GarageBand, but it's always learning different things because I could be reading something on, you know, the existential crisis of <laughs> the age of 30 or whatever. Right, right. Uh, but I'll read that and all of a sudden I'll go, oh, well, that gives me the greatest idea ever of how I can apply something. And it ends up being a very interesting, creative and unique thing that comes in to what I'm doing because it's so far outside of and away from the the normal uh, in, environment of what it is that I would be working in regularly. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so I think that I guess for me, what it really comes down to is it's about not taking the moment too seriously. You know, I, I feel like a lot of what, what uh, has been shared f- from the three of you is, uh, relates to process and discipline and being open and being present uh, and, re- you know, being willing to be inspired from a lot of different sources. But at the end of the day, it's not life or death. You know, it's it really is it should be, I think, it's most effective if it's play. And I get, I find that I get, I get blocked when I take it too seriously. You know, just trying to work it too hard instead of relaxing and letting it be what it wants to be. So, on that note, um, we're out of time. 
I want to thank my, my two guests and my co-host, Amalia Dillon, author of the Fate of the Gods series. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Annette Wagner, uh, intentional creativity teacher and visionary artist. Thank you. And hi, C, as always, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. And with that, we'll be right back. At Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest. Or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for today's spirited conversation is Stuart Cubley. Stuart is founder of the Institute for Art and Living and the Painting Experience. His work has carried him throughout the world to work with groups in a process of inner exploration using the tool of expressive painting to access the potential within the human heart and imagination. He has taught his unique approach to thousands at places like Esalen and the Omega Institute, multinational corporations, even in prisons. He's the co-author of Life, Paint, and Passion, Reclaiming the Magic of Spontaneous Expression. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you. Stuart, um, I had the distinct pleasure of enjoying your work and experiencing the power of it uh, at Esalen in May of this year. And it was such a fast, it was a week-long experience. Are, are, there, are, your, are your painting experiences typically a week? They vary. Uh, I do. That was actually five days at Esalen. I right. do quite a few five days. I do weekends. I go. I'll go to a city and we'll have a Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, and then I do a ten-day workshop every year. Oh, in, that's in Hawaii. <laughs> that sounds like it's yeah. great. So um, let's let's start with a, like a description. What is the painting experience? Yeah. Good. Uh, well, this is relevant because I'm just making a new website and, mm-hmm. and I've been thinking, okay, how am I going to describe what this actually is? And, and uh, I, you know, my original take or just recently I was thinking, okay, the first question is, what is process art? The, the name of the website is processarts.com. And the short answer is uh, doing art for the process rather than the product. Mm, okay. And given that we use painting, we work with painting, you know, so it's painting for the process of painting, the experience of painting, rather than putting emphasis upon the finished product and trying to uh, uh, to make something or to turn yourself into an artist or to become, you know, recognized. It's really about the experience of creativity. And the second question is, in a short, in a short form, well, how do you practice it? And essentially, painting without thinking. Painting without thinking. Yeah. It's painting without a goal. Painting without having to figure anything out ahead of time. It's it's daring to leap into the experience of moving a brush 
filled with color on a, on a paper, which is what we use a high quality paper, and to leap into that experience without having to know where you're going or to control it in any particular way. But to dare to follow a kind of muse that uh, that appears once you give yourself permission to not know where you're going, uh, uh, a muse uh, shows up and and directs you. So part of the work is learning to recognize that voice inside that internal it, voice. You, in in the thread, the article that you wrote in 2005, you said not knowing when tolerated seems to create a vacuum where another type of knowingness can emerge. Expand on that. Yeah, um, I put a lot of emphasis on not knowing, and uh, and I set the environment. Uh, as you know, John, since you've experienced it, I set up an environment in which there's a complete studio. You walk in, the colors are there. The the everyone has a light on their space. It's re- it's well lighted, and 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 then we have an environment. We create an environment in which people are not going to be competing. So there's no competition, there's no uh, measurement, there's no choice of better and worse, and there's no goal, there's no, there's no model to follow. And so we, we, we set a very clear and clean environment in which people can begin to explore, and we don't give a direction. It's It's non-directed. It's not like... Here we are coming up on Halloween. We're going to paint pumpkins, you know, <laughs> right, right? Right. And and nor do we give a direction about um, you trying to connect with some issue or some problem or some aspiration and then painting that. We don't want to give you any idea to begin with. Is that what you mean by not knowing? That's what I mean by not knowing. Daring to approach a blank piece of paper without knowing where you're going. And it, this is challenging because... Because we are so conditioned to feel like we should know and that we should be producing and that we should be um, accomplishing something. So all these voices come up internally that would turn us away from the pure act of creating without a goal. So the first step is actually not knowing. Do you, do you dare to not know and to not uh, have to have a plan. And then when you do that, when you open up that space of not knowing, there's another voice that talks to you. And that's what I mean by that knowingness. There's a knowingness. There's a, it could be as simple as a color. You, you, you say, okay, I don't know what to do. And you look over at the painting table and there's all these colors laid out. And one color is going to jump at you more than another color. That's a quality of knowingness that has come out of being willing not to know what you're doing. Uh, so so there's a... It's the space between the notes. I love to I love to quote Miles Davis, you know, it's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't. Interesting, right? yeah. Uh, the idea, the, the space between the thoughts, uh, the Buddhist yes. notion. Yeah. Is that what we're... Is that what we're teasing out is that what we're experiencing absolutely yeah there's you see when you talk about the space between the notes um and the space between the thoughts there's you're talking about the background right there's something there's something back there so there is something back there oh yeah and oh yeah we often don't give it room to be perceived perceived and we don't give it room to act through us 
Oh, I like that. Okay. So is is it? So what's back there? <laughs> well, whatever you know, there's a lot of words for it. Um, you know, some people call it the divine. Some people call it the unconscious. Um, you know, you where it depends on whether you're speaking in Jungian terms or spiritual terms or uh, other terms. But the the purpose of the painting process is to become transparent to that background. The hollow bone, as they say in some spiritual traditions. Yeah, yeah. To become transparent to to that greater force that's living in us, and th- and has the potential to live through us if we get out of the our way. Do you do you attribute something superior to that that mystery back there? Is it? Is it more important than our conscious awareness? Well, how does it relate it to our conscious awareness? And, and I mean, there's a reason you're trying to draw it forward. Yeah. Well, certainly there's a wisdom in it. And there's an intelligence in it. And it, it's the bigger picture. It, it's, it's, it's something bigger than the little bubble of our conscious mind. It's more deeply rooted. It's more deeply connected. And it really has our own healing and our own evolution in mind. It's not random. How do you know this? Oh, that's good. No, good question. Good question. Well, you know, there's no way to, how how can I say I know this? I know this. And there's no, um, there's no question for me. And I see it happening in myself and I see it happening in the experiences that people have in the painting process that there's an internal intelligence that is that is other than the thinking process we have going on, and that it it's more right on, and it knows more what we need, and so the work is really first of all recognizing that, having a sense of that potential, and then finding a way to access it. Painting is one way. There's not the only way. There's, there's all sorts of ways. Meditation, but uh, finding a way to access it, and and then finding a way to allow it to inform you, to actually move through you, to change the way you are in the world, mm-hmm. to trust that, to, tr- mm-hmm. to actually develop a trust that, that there, there's, a greater, uh, there's a greater being inside of us. And it's not just theoretical. It's not just heady. It's not just some idea that you can relate to. It's actually here and now. So you've been doing this work for how long? Gosh, it's been... Between thirty and forty years now, and so I want to I want to talk more about that maybe yep. later later in the conversation. But um, in over this this arc of time, have you come to a more intimate understanding of this being, this force, this experience, this mystery, this unconscious, in some in some explainable way? Do you know this? character better <laughs> this force better sure it's inevitable when you do something for so long and and you're working with other people and creating a space in which to elicit it and to and to explore it uh, there there's a, of course there's a greater understanding and yet it's a mystery which is beyond understanding it's not something you 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 grasp and say oh i have this down now i i uh, i totally i understand this no, I mean it's it's an opening mystery. It, it's it's something that continues to surprise you and surprise me. 
So over the years, have you gotten a different kind of familiarity with it? I mean, like, do you, is it easier for you to, 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 to move with it, to groove with it? Uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and in particular ways, which I'd be happy to talk about, for example, um, resistance. Okay. Mm. Resistance comes up. And I think at the beginning, um, like a lot of people, I, I looked at resistance as something to overcome mm-hmm. or as some way in which I was unwilling to be present or to pay attention. And and therefore, resistance was something that was in my way. It was it was something that I, I needed to fix or or go beyond. And I think that I've come to recognize the inevitable resistance that occurs when you undertake uh, any creative activity, uh, and especially an activity in which there's not a model or a goal that you're trying to achieve, but it's more open-ended. There's a, there's an, uh, a necessary resistance that shows up at a certain point, and and uh, this is this is part and parcel of the experience. It's not separate from. It's not something in your way. It's not something to get over. Uh, it's it's something I've learned that is to be inhabited. Okay, so I want to explore that a lot more. Okay. Um, when you gave us instructions for the painting experience, besides showing us the paint and you know yeah. how to use the clean the brushes and stuff like that, hmm. um, you basically said, go paint, and then when you think you're done, don't take the painting off the wall. Come and you know get our attention and let's talk about it. Yes. Why? Why was that the only instruction? Yeah, good question. Again, this has evolved over time for me. And I think in the beginning I know I know I felt like I had to say more. I felt like I had to give more to people. And so I would talk about the greater process and the potential that exists within everyone and and blah 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 and 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 sometimes fill people's heads too much, especially that first night. So when we started, uh, John, as you remember, it was pretty simple. As you say, it was like, okay, here's how to use the materials. And uh, a little bit about, you know, the fact that we're not going to be comparing and that we're having an environment that's safe and there's not going to be any, uh, we're not going to be doing any commenting on each other's paintings, if you remember. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then uh I want I didn't want you to have any idea of what to do. The, this for me is such a crucial point, that first contact with the process in which you are left entirely on your own. There's no indication of what it would mean to please the teacher, what it would mean to do this process correctly, what it should look like, what it would mean to be successful, none of that. So you are really left in a very open field. And and that for me is incredibly valuable because I don't want to give you a direction. I want you to have to come back to yourself. And I want you to have to turn inwardly rather than outwardly. So you have to sense, okay, they're not telling me what to do. I guess I better get started. <laughs> and then about the completion... Yes, please talk to us before you take before you're done before you take the painting off the wall because um, that's a very that's a very precious time. 
And there's a, there's a lot of learning that occurs around the completion. Because very often, well, first of all, how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you're complete? Well, and, that, and this is and this is what I'm trying to I'm trying to tease out. Like, yeah, when I mean, you 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 gave that as not only the only instruction, but the specific instruction. That's right. That was the the catalyst or the trigger for something, or you wouldn't have given that instruction. Yeah, right. What what is that for? For you to become more conscious around the completion process, not to treat it willy nilly. Because usually, if you treat it willy nilly, you're going to you're going to take you're going to abandon the project, the painting, when it gets a little uncomfortable, or when you have a judgment about it, and you're going to start thinking, "Oh, this is this isn't worthy. This isn't worth continuing. The next painting will be better." And so you'll just take it down, kind of unconsciously. This is part of our programming. And so if you're aware that, oh, wait, uh, I want, I'm, I'm going to talk to Stuart before I take the painting down, then it makes it more uh, conscious. You're more present for that moment. And then I get a chance to intrigue you. And I can say, John, you know, it's often after you think you're finished that something really interesting can happen. Or I might say, John, what did you think about putting in this painting that you didn't do? Which essentially is, I'm asking, what did the background, what did the muse bring you that you decided didn't fit? That you censored? Mm. That you controlled? Because you wanted a nice product, or you thought it didn't make sense, or whatever. So at some point, the, the painter in this process believes they're Wants to be done. Wants to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you briefly touched on it. You said often that happens in the presence of a judgment about it. Uh, what else? What other? Not knowing what to do next. Not knowing what to do next. Coming to a pause, and which is a, uh, there are plateaus in a pro, in the painting, and you may go through a kind of phase of flow, and then it comes to an end. And you don't know what to do next. And being uncomfortable with that space of not knowing what to do next, you want to take it down right away. Okay, so there's a difference between the not knowing at the beginning when the canvas is blank mm-hmm. and the uncomfortable nature of the moment when you decide you're stuck or yeah. you're stopping or you're judging. Mm-hmm. For me... And I would want you to reflect on your experience here. For me, the beginning moment was one of excitement and trepidation together, right? Like, oh, I don't know what to do, but it, you know, I'm about to embark on a, mm-hmm. an adventure. But the one after the canvas has been worked on, the paper's been worked on, is more like not a. a what is that feeling? A, a lack of ease and a, a feeling feeling trapped by what I've already done. Yeah. You know, feeling right. feeling incompetent about what I was trying to evoke, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. What 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 do you how do you help somebody through and why? 
Mm-hmm. Do you help somebody through that pause? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're both challenging, right, to the psyche. And I often call the first one the first void and the second one the second void. Uh-huh. The, very, very practical. <laughs> yeah, because they're they're both about not knowing. And it's true. In the first in the first instance, when you're faced with a blank piece of paper, it's totally potential. Yeah. Nothing's happened yet. Right. So there can be a kind of uh, apprehension there and an excitement at the same time. But there's a great quote that I love uh, uh, from Alan Watts. Uh, he said it was the, uh, uh, the first words of God, according to Alan Watts, is you've got to draw the line somewhere. and as soon as you draw the line you've you've desecrated the void the 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 pure potential has now been violated violated there's something there and the judgment can now step in because it's never right to the mind according to the mind the comparative mind it's never quite right and or if you do get to a place where you think it's kind of right, then you're afraid to touch it again. The mm-hmm. process stops because you get too attached to the rightness. Mm-hmm. And so there are these multiple voids that occur in the in the unfolding of a painting. And you do get to that place where you think, okay, now I've got all this stuff. I feel kind of trapped by it. I don't know what to do next. And so my question at that point would be. Do you feel like the conversation is over? Do you feel like the experience is over, the journey is over? Because that's a different knowing. It's almost like in conversation with a person, you know, you know when everything's been said, even though at a certain point you may not know exactly what you want to say, but you you know if it hasn't been said, there's something more, there's something left. That's that's the awareness I want to st- I want to bring to the fore when I'm in that moment with you about completion, which is, do you feel like you have gone to the end of the road here? Or do you feel like you're trying to get away from it? I think that's that's a huge uh, part of the of that that moment, either because you don't want to mess it up or because you're dissatisfied with what is there or you're dissatisfied with your own capacity to exactly. to do it right, exactly. in a way. Yeah. So is there I mean, you know, one could one could call that moment a lot of things. One might call it a creative block. Is there really such a thing as a creative block? Sure. Yeah. Or is it just that you're not looking in the right places, or you're well, not accepting what is. Or... It's a matter of terminology, but of course, you know there there are point there are times when you feel really blocked, and and you can feel very lethargic and really heavy, and 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 you can hate it. You can hate your painting, and so there are times when you really get stopped in this process. So I would call that a creative block. But I also want to come back to, to the fact that it's 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 inevitable. It's um it's part and parcel of the process. Yeah. See this. Is, so how is it? What's the relationship between creativity and resistance? Yeah. Like like yeah. How, how does the block facilitate? So, like what is its role? What its its role is to bring something new to you. 
And the ego mind resists the new. There's a great quote by Carl Jung in his uh, work on uh, active imagination. And he said, the conscious rejects the unconscious. And I see this unfolding over and over and over again in this process, that when something really new, truly new, presents itself, our first impulse is, no way. Wow. No way. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. I don't like it. It would ruin the painting. People would laugh at me. Okay. On that note, let's take a short break. And then when we come back, I want to talk more about about resistance and the subconscious, the conscious rejecting that which is new. Great. All right. We'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. In conversation with Stuart Cubley, the founder of the Institute for Art and Living and the Painting Experience. And Stuart, before the break, we were talking about a young quote uh, that the the conscious rejects the unconscious, and that you were saying that the conscious mind rejects that which is new. And a creative block is an opportunity for something new to arrive. And is, is that your ego saying no to that? Well, yes, I think it is. And But I, I also don't want to make the ego wrong for saying that. Because, you see, the fact is we have an ego life. We have an identity based upon who we take ourselves to be and, and, and based upon our relationships and based upon our work and based upon our past experience, we carry around a, an identity, an ego identity. And there's an, there, there's an intactness to that. Um, and at the same time, I think if you're undertaking a creative activity, you're also realizing that there's a limitation in that. And in the ego. In, the, in that ego identity. And so, what is, what's the nature of that limitation? That it wants to preserve itself at all costs. It doesn't want to be disturbed. It doesn't want to be put in a position where it might have to recognize something outside of its sphere. And the way that manifests in the painting is that you'll, um, you know, you were talking about how you can get stuck by by form by by once you get a form on the painting you can feel stuck by it but we are we're we're also attached to it a, a structure creates attachment and so as soon as colors and shapes and forms and maybe images show up in the painting we we find ourselves wanting to uh direct it and and control it and to protect it and uh and have it go in a certain way that will be to our liking because we developed now a relationship to that form. And so when you, if you really open and become more transparent to the unconscious, something will come, will show up and knock at the door, and it may not uh, fit what you think you're doing. And it may, it may make it seem like you would ruin your painting if you were to put that in there. And 
it it'll keep knocking if it's meant to be there. If it's truly a uh, you know a valid creative force coming from that other dimension, it's going to keep knocking at the door, and it's going to make you miserable. It's going to make you blocked. And this is really how I read a block. In other words, when somebody tells me they're blocked, I realize something's knocking at the door. Is that always the case, or is it just because maybe they're done? Well, no. Being done is different than being blocked. There's a completion that is possible in this process, and that's why I like to talk to people uh, around the completion, and there's a real learning that takes place there. Because when you are when you are truly complete, you're no longer grasping and you're no longer pushing away. You're no longer protecting and trying to manage the painting. Um, and But at the same time, you're no longer judging it and trying to get away from it. There's, a, there's an equanimity. It's an inner state. The completion of a painting is an inner state in which you are really balanced and you're, you're open. If anything else wants to come, it's fine. You're open to it. You're following the energy. You're, you're, you're letting it have its way with you. You're, you're, you're more, the, the potential at the completion of a painting is to become transparent to the unconscious. And so you're saying, have your way with me. It's fine. I don't, I'm not, if, if it changes the painting, that's okay. And if I like it, if I don't like it, it doesn't matter. There's something else going on that's more important. Okay. So if I like it or if I don't like it, it doesn't matter. What matters if not that? Great question. What matters is the movement itself. What matters is the, is the participation with the creative force. What matters is th- this transparency that you you have gotten out of your own way and are allowing that which wants to be painted to be painted. And there's something that feels so good about that, that, that when you taste it, and this is what happens when as you paint more and you get a sense of the completion, when you get a taste of that, you realize that if at one point you really like the painting or another point you don't like the painting, it's superfluous in comparison to this participation. It's the participation that's really the turn on. And and it's the participation in being the instrument of the thing that wants to be painted. Well, there is something quite profound that happens there in that participation. When you do let go and you are not, not trying to control the outcome and you're open to the voice of the creative muse and you're acting on that and you're giving voice to that, there is a oneness that you're experiencing. There's a there's a non-duality. There is a sense of coming into your true nature, which is which is undivided. And and in that there's the potential to sense something very profound about who you actually are. What what insights have you gathered about who you slash we actually are from this process? Well, it's one thing to talk about it theoretically, and, and it's it's something very difficult to put in words. That's why, for me, the the painting process is a, is a way to have a living experience of that. And it's mm. really different for each person, and there's, a, there's an availability that's and an access that's different for each person, but I think there's a common sort of experience, which is 
when you relax your own judgment and when you relax your own uh, tendency to want to control the outcome and you're more open to the the play and the serendipity of the moment and and you uh you find yourself more uh, engaged with the the risk taking and, and daring to encounter your own fear and and not turning away from places that are a little scary and you you inhabit yourself fully which is, means you're inhabiting every emotion that comes up here you know, uh, if you're sad you inhabit the sadness if anger comes up you inhabit the anger and you move with it in the painting and you allow that to come through so you're no longer choosing you're no longer picking and choosing. And in that, the one who we normally identify with, who's the picker and the chooser, recedes into the background. And you realize there's a bigger dimension here. So so can you productively inhabit your judgment? Oh, yeah. I mean, because you're, you're standing there in front of the canvas or yeah. in front of the paper, and you're like... Yeah. Uh, I don't like that. I mean, I remember, I remember doing the one, one of the paintings um, in your workshop where I had these, I attempted to, uh, to create a structure and it was mm-hmm. dark, right? It was, I used black paint or gray, mm-hmm. gray paint. So it was not like it was something was, it was not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it was going to be prominent in the painting no matter yeah. what. Yeah. And I, I felt that I had executed it poorly uh, and it was now in the way, and it was a blot on the overall mood and what I was trying to evoke, what was trying to come through, and uh, that was that was a moment of significant judgment. Yeah. Um, what is the utility of inhabiting something like that? Yeah. Well, just the words you've been using, John, um, that you you were trying to create a certain mood in the painting. You had a certain uh, take on that painting and, a, and and therefore a feeling of the way it should unfold. And here comes, here this, this other image comes barging in or this color and, and, and is, uh, is violating your idea of where this thing is going and what and, it and, it's, and it's there by my own hand. And right? you actually did it. <laughs> right. It's not like somebody else came in and did it. You did it. And so I look at that and I say, hmm, there's there's something that wants to break through here. Your judgment is is a knee-jerk reaction to the call of the creative voice. The, the creative voice is knocking at the door. It's, it's more than knocking. It's actually it, it found its way into your painting and you're saying, no way, I don't want you. And so And so you judge the painting. And so this is something I learned over the years, and it's really quite exciting, actually. And I think it's one of the biggest takeaways from this process is to realize that our judgments are intelligent. We just don't know how to read them. Okay. That the judgment, if you if you lift the veil on the judgment, if you if you look under the hood, the first thing uh, uh, prior to the judgment. Is it is discomfort? The first thing prior to judgment is discomfort. That you're painting along and something happens, and you feel very uncomfortable. That's that's what happened to right, you. Right. A split second 
a microsecond later, you've decided it's the the painting is the problem. Right. You've moved from the discomfort, from the actual feeling. Ah, uh-huh, from, from as within, so without. I projected it out yeah, into the canvas. As, exactly. That's the right. problem. So you're paying attention now. You pushed it out of yourself, and in doing that, it's it it's a way of disowning the feeling. Blame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and then you blame it on yourself, like I don't have the skill, or right, I shouldn't have right, done that, or whatever. Right, but right. by by moving outside of yourself and making the painting wrong and judging the painting, it's a way of denying the discomfort. So I'll work with you at that point, or someone, and say, okay, let's inhabit the discomfort. You were feeling really dissatisfied there. Something is. Where do you feel it in your body? Right. Right. And and what if we found what if we found a way to let that discomfort and that and that dissatisfaction into the painting. What if you could actually paint with that feeling? And then you might find yourself saying, "Okay, I'm going to get some color that, you know, that doesn't maybe it's black or red, I don't know what. It could be anything." And you find that if you can let that feeling into the painting, the door opens. So our judgments are intelligent because they give us an opportunity to to backtrack to a, a, a moment of discomfort. Yes, they point to something. So you can get really, you can begin to be, be get intrigued with your own judgments when you see yourself judging. And I'll often talk about this in the group. I'll say, you know, I love it when somebody tells me with great passion what they're not going to do. <laughs> Why? Because they want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> And it's similar with judgment. You know, when you really are judging something really strongly, it's like my red my red flag goes up. It's like, okay, you know, this is really pointing at something. There's something that wants to happen here, and you're saying, no way. So that's the ego, little ego bubble, not wanting to allow a bigger dimension into its into its sphere. And and going back to the to the the notion that the ego doesn't like something new. That's right. Well, can, do, you, do you have any deeper insight on why the ego doesn't like things that are new? Or? You know, I th- I think it's just the dynamic tension that exists within the human psyche that we need to have uh, this defined structure in which to function in the world. We have to have this this definition, and the, and we have to protect it. Uh, and at the same time, it's too small for us. There needs there's a there's an inherent uh, force in us that wants to go beyond that limitation, and and but doing it in a healthy way, in which in which you're standing you're standing in your structure, but but being willing to go beyond the boundaries, in a way that's appropriate. And I find that there's an there's an incredible intelligence and and um, how should I say and pacing and timing. And sensitivity that this inner intelligence has, it doesn't give you too much. Uh-huh. It gives you the right amount. And so sometimes somebody will come in with suffering and with maybe a, a background of, of trauma or abuse or something, and they're afraid that they're going to go over, they're going to go too far, that they could get out of control. And my experience is that that when you're in the right environment and you're supported in the right way and you're not being told what to do and you're not going to be compared and therefore humiliated and and you're not expected to express yourself in one way or another 
that these feelings have a chance to unfold in a very natural and organic and uh, and timely way that that are helpful. That and so you don't you don't lose your cool and you don't you don't lose your cool. No, have you, a breakdown. <laughs> no, no. Now there are some people, of course, who who uh, it, it does require. Uh, I would say some, uh, kind of an intactness. There has to be a a kind of integrity of the ego uh, in order to want to explore in this way. It's not. Uh, it's it's more difficult with somebody who has a real. Uh, uh, you know, a, a deep psychosis, and usually somebody who is in that sort of situation where they're not feeling stable and they're not feeling confident in themselves, the environment doesn't appeal to them ah, because right, it's right. it's one that does that that has safety, but it has challenge. Right, and so the discomfort starts before they even get into the room, or once they're there, they realize this is not for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, tell me about. How this, you know, because we're talking about an intactness of the psyche, and uh, I was intrigued to discover that you did this work in prisons. Yeah. What's been your experience? Like, share some about that experience. Yeah. Well, for a few years, I worked in San Quentin, and um, it was actually during the dot-com days. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, the first thing that I dis- I noticed when in working there was that uh, I would drive there on the freeway here in Marin County, mm-hmm. and and there would be everybody is rushing off to work and cutting me off and tense and and totally taken up by you know uh, the, the responsibilities they have. And I would get to San Quentin, and it, everything would just slow. Down. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that's such a weird contrast. <laughs> and not only that, it was like people saw me. Instead of being an impediment on the freeway, it was like, "Hey, bro, welcome back. We're really glad to have you here again." Mm-hmm. They they appreciated. Uh, the guards didn't appreciate me. They but the inmates appreciated the effort that I took to come and be with them. And there was a completely different pace there. It was almost like a, on some level, it it reminded me of a of a kind of monastery. Mm. Now, of course, you know there were a lot. There's a lot more case. going on in that, but yeah. but there was a there was it was very slow, and people people were living more presently, just because of the environment that they had to be in. They couldn't you couldn't you couldn't plan do turn. all that yeah. stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So there was that first, and then um, and then I discovered that that often many of these men who were uh, you know, were incarcerated, uh, were actually too innocent. There was a great innocence in them. And, and in, in a way, a kind of undefended innocence. If they weren't drugged out, um, mm-hmm. there was a quality that I noticed of them that I could see why they got in trouble. Hmm. Because they 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 didn't have a lot of sophistication in a way. And and sometimes just didn't really know what they were doing. And so they would get in trouble. And then once you get in that loop, it keeps you in the loop. Like the oh. recidivism rate was like 75% or something. And so then, then you're conditioned to be in jail and to be a inmate. And then you come back because you don't, you can't make it in the outside world. But what I discovered about the creative process for these men was that they were more transparent 
and more available and more accessible often than uh, someone who was not in jail. Wow. They would often paint their families. They would paint their kids. They would do it in such a childlike way. It was one, it was so beautiful, so innocent. There was a real authenticity and integrity. And maybe it was because there was just nothing left to lose. That's an interesting statement. They so, were at the bottom. So authenticity coupled with nothing left to lose yeah. is a very interesting insight. What is the Joni Mitchell quote? Were you thinking of that? Uh, no, no. Fr- freedom is uh, oh, that's, that's, nothing uh, left to lose, something like that. That's um, Janis Joplin. Janis freedom Joplin. is just another word for nothing left that's to lose. That's it. That's it, yeah. And freedom comes, authenticity is a natural consequence of freedom. Yeah. Because why not? Yeah. Wow. And part of what you do in the painting experience is Invite people into a place where they have nothing to lose. Yes. And where they feel when they find they bump up against a notion that they are about to have something to lose. Mm-hmm. Resistance mm-hmm. is where you say there actually is something to gain here, something different. There's a deeper level of recognizing there's nothing left to lose available here. Oh, I like that better. I like that better. And so then you're dancing with this numinous force of the mystery. That's really, that's really great. Um, it's a, it's a, that's not an easy. You're right. It's not an easy place to verbalize from. Uh, so for those of you who are listening, <laughs> forgive us. It's not an easy place to verbalize from. Somebody said recently, uh, she said, you know, I, I came to the workshop and the first thing that struck me was that there were all these people there that had done it before. And you might have experienced that at Aslan. Yeah, there yeah. was a big contingent of people who were there and had come come back. And she said, you know, I was just wondering, why are they, why are they doing this again? Didn't they get it? And... Um, and then by the end of the workshop, she said, now I really get it, that, that this, is, this is an environment that is, a, is an, uh, in a space in which to explore. And it's endless. It's open-ended. That, that when you come back to, to this uh, experience again, it's, to, it's, it's going to speak to you again, and it's going to speak to you in a different way. And it's never repeating uh, no, no. what you've done. And it's not about learning a skill. It's not about getting better at painting. It's uh, it's about realizing that this is a powerful tool, and it's it's not separate from, you know, your own engagement with the, with your creative process on a daily level. It feels like the practice of permission. Yeah. And that permission is to really to not judge. It's permission to not judge. For me, it's what it mm-hmm. feels like. Uh, is that? Yeah, I think I think that's one of the effects of this work is that you you develop a really different relationship to your own judgment, and you re- and you see how as I, as we were saying that it if you if you react to it in a knee jerk fashion, it just shuts you down. 
But if you, you know, you you start to realize that it's unnecessary in so many ways. It's really just the new speaking to you. And so you develop a new relationship to it in which you're more, you give it more permission. You're more available to it. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time. Uh, it's been a fabulous conversation. Is there any last thoughts you want to share? Well, um, I've enjoyed this too, John. It's, I, I, I appreciate your questions. They really go in depth. And I do know that this process is, it's one thing to talk about it, and it's another thing to experience it. I, I can vouch for that. Yeah, because you can you can conceptualize it, and many people read the book and they get an idea of it, and then when they actually come to experience it, they realize, oh, wow, this is a whole different deal. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about, that's why we call it the painting experience, right? It's It's so much about that moment, that rather raw moment, when you are vulnerable and, and, and you might say naked in front of this white canvas piece of paper and uh, and you don't know where it's going to go. There's something about that that really gets in your blood and you, and you recognize that we have a tremendous thirst for coming up against the unknown. And we have a, we have a thirst for engaging the mystery which is which is always there and when we don't have that when we are too busy with all the stuff in our lives and we're not um, meeting that moment or having a, a space in which we can actually engage the mystery uh, we get dissatisfied things feel too small we, we feel unhappy and so I know that that part of feeling healthy and happy is is having a place where you can go and there's no holes barred mm. and there's, there's nothing you have to do. It doesn't have to come out in a certain way. You really get to let your hair down, so to speak. And that has powerful consequences that really affects everything else in your life. Wow. Great. And, and if folks want to get to know you and your work a little bit better, where do we send them? Uh, the website is processarts.com. Mm-hmm. And we are headquartered in the Bay Area, but we travel all over. There's workshops all over the country. You have and a workshop coming up soon. Got a workshop coming up uh, in Esalen, actually, uh, in December, early December of uh, 2014 this year. And then a full contingent of workshops in 2015 around the country. And we're doing a lot more online experiences for people as well, which is quite exciting. Uh, we, we recently initiated a program called Paint In. Hmm. Where uh, where we video conference and have people painting at home with their laptops or their computers pointed at their painting space mm-hmm. and and uh, I get to zoom right in and see people painting and work with them and you can hear the water swishing and you can hear people <laughs> moving around it, it, and it overcomes one of the the biggest challenges to painting at home which is isolation mm-hmm. people often feel alone and kind of then therefore don't get to it. So here it's on your calendar. You show up and you're with other people virtually, and and uh, it really works. So that's one of our. All right. Uh, so give us that website again. Yes, that's processarts.com. P-R-O-C-E-S-S-A-R-T-S.com. Great, Stuart. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, John. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L I V E. 
Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. I've been thinking long and hard about the nature of relationships. It's been a year since I left my marriage of 29 years, and there's a lot of closet to go through and clear out. Some of it clears easily, some not so easily. I've also found myself testing the waters of new relationships. It's not exactly scary for me. It's it's a fun adventure. But what I'm discovering is that there's a deep complexity to these things that, well, I guess I didn't really understand before. And there's so much territory to cover. Too much for one reflection, so I want to focus on just one aspect of relationship. Authenticity. What is it about authenticity that matters so much? I've been seeing a woman, quite a magical woman, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on with my feelings. It's been up and down, which is not particularly surprising since it's my first more than a couple of dates connection since my divorce. Interestingly, I had no intention of making this kind of deep connection with this person. She was an acquaintance, a friend of a friend, and we had some activities in common. I needed a place to stay for a while while I was being a gypsy, And as she's done for many others, she generously offered me a place to crash for a few days. In a series of encounters and departures through the late spring and summer that would have made for an absurd comedy or maybe a compelling drama, I came to a place of deepening awareness about who she was. Our connection deepened to friendship. Our friendship deepened to romance. And then... Then the trouble started. (laughs) On the surface... So much of our relationship seems so perfect. We have so much in common. Interests, values, quirks, desires. It's like the perfect blind date. No expectation on either side, and yet everything seems so aligned. But what happened? Well, over time, I got antsy. I got panicky. It was going too fast for me, and I began to get uncomfortable. What did I do about it? Well, overtly, nothing. And here's where the problem lies. Instead of having the courage to speak about my discomfort, I chose to attempt to reshape myself to fit the circumstances. It's a classic habit formed from and through the struggles of trying to cultivate a long-term relationship. But I wasn't in one. So what the hell was I doing? Well, I discovered after some deep journey work that What I was doing was, I wasn't being authentic. And I wasn't being authentic because I didn't want to disappoint my new lady friend. I didn't want to be something that wasn't enough for her. I wanted to be the good guy. I wanted to be the knight, the prince, the king she was hoping for. I wanted to be Mr. Right. But I didn't feel happy. I felt burdened. I felt confused. And I felt trapped. What was I trapped by? Well, my own unwillingness to be a disappointment to someone, to cause someone pain, to be unreliable and on the rebound and all those other self-judgments that were running around in my head. 
And this lady is no dummy. She could see my discomfort long before I could understand what it was, and certainly long before I could admit it. And I couldn't admit it. Because that would feel like opening myself up to be the bad guy. So while I was consciously trying to be Mr. Right, unconsciously I was looking for a way out of the trap that I felt I was in, that really I'd set for myself. And that unconscious agency was sabotaging our relationship. It was polluting that which was fun, and it was hurting my new partner. Well, she called me on it. With the help of her penetrating insight, her courage, and the wisdom of my spirit helpers, I realized that I was being inauthentic and that it had to stop. I felt the effect of my lack of authenticity as a burning weight in my solar plexus, a dark heaviness that sapped my energy, caused anxiety, and made me feel sick and weak. I imagine kryptonite might feel like this. Finally, I realized something very profound. The best relationship you can have with someone is not the one you fabricate based on who you think you should be, or even think you can be, but based on who you are right now. Loving someone the best way you know how, giving them the best you have, is not an act of fiction. It's an act grounded in what you actually have to offer, what you actually feel, not what you wish you felt or what you know the other wants to feel from you. And this is true for two reasons. First, if you don't operate from who you actually are and what you are actually feeling, it's not sustainable. You're creating a projection of yourself that you can't maintain. Or, well, at least for me, I'm no longer capable of performing that act of constant projection. It's exhausting and, as I mentioned above, a particular kind of painful. Second, if you don't share who you actually are and what you're actually feeling, in spite of what you think you're doing to protect and serve the other person, you're lying to them. You rob them of the opportunity to see what they're actually getting. It's a con, and a particularly nasty one because you're playing with somebody else's heart. The best relationship you can have with someone is to love them the best way you can, even if that's not the way they would prefer to have you love them. And eventually, if they're honest about it, they'll prefer your authentic love, too. The balance comes due eventually, and the longer you take to balance things out, the more pain and suffering you create. The best relationship you can have with someone is to love them the best way you know how, even if they want something more or deeper. Trying to, pretending to, projecting into loving them deeper is an act. It's not sustainable, and it robs them of their sovereignty. That's not a better relationship. It might feel nicer for a week or a month or a year, but it's not better because it's based on something fundamentally false. So that's what I shared with her. I'm going to love you the best way I know how, and our relationship will take whatever form is right for that kind of and amount of love that I have available to share. I've been doing that, more or less, in the ensuing months, 
I have to be reminded. I have to stay courageous. I have to stay present to my own internal truth and honor it, prioritize it, more than being my own projection of Mr. Right for somebody else. It's not easy work, and it's not a habit that dies easily. Guess what? We've both grown significantly. And while our future is still unfolding, we've been able to stay honest and clear, and our friendship and mutual respect has only deepened. Because authenticity is a miraculous thing. It allows you to be true to yourself, which wastes less energy, which gives you more energy to be present and to grow and to try things that interest you, which makes you a better person and a more interesting partner, even in the presence of your less than wholly attractive parts. But that's not all, because a really, really significant stopping place on this journey is the relationship you get to have and are challenged to have with yourself. The best possible relationship you can have with yourself is the one where you don't hide who you are to yourself. And having chosen to be authentic, love yourself to the best of your ability. So back to that closet and emptying it. I have, for a very long time, not been my authentic self because I always felt that my authentic self wasn't good enough to be what I projected I had to be in order to be a a good guy, in order to be loved by others and myself. So the alternative is to empty the closet, take everything out and lay it out in the open and say, this, in this moment, is who I am. I may not be head over heels in love with that guy, that self who exists in this moment, but there are two benefits to doing this work. First, I get to actually see and assess who I am. Really and honestly come to an understanding of who I am without succumbing to the fear of, oh my God, what will I discover? In fact, to empty the closet completely, you have to withstand the natural inclination to run like hell in the other direction. Whatever it is in there, is in there. And I have to, have to examine it. And second, I know deep in my heart of hearts that I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a terrible monster. And there are parts of myself that I like very much. So I get to have an honest conversation with myself about who I am, what I love about me, and what I don't really love and what I can change, and what I maybe can't. And in that discussion hides some of the hardest part of this work. What if I discover something that I don't love, but can't change? What then? Right now, it's a scary notion, and it's one of the things that makes this work go slowly. And I don't know what will happen, truly, but... I know this much. Compassion is a powerful tool. When I choose, and it is a choice, to apply that compassion to myself, and when I choose, and it is a choice, to drop my judgments and choose love, overarching, welcoming, accepting, unconditional love as a priority, I trust with all the trust I can muster that I'll end up in a better place a happier, more whole, 
more grace-filled place than if I don't do this work. I think this story has a happy ending. And, as scary as it is, I'm looking forward to seeing how it turns out. We'll be right back. Yes, we've added to our lineup of lively, thought-provoking shows. But don't forget our original Sunday morning lineup at 10.30 a.m. Join us for Healing Conversations with Mildred Lynn McDonald every first Sunday. Revolution with Heisey Ludmers every second Sunday. Convergence with John Carousella every third Sunday. And our popular on-air call-in show the fourth Sunday of every month. We're excited. Give us a listen as we continue to create new and entertaining ways for you to shine your inner light. Join us at Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Well, that's our show. Last month, I shared that Burning Man had left me with a powerful message. Be yourself. This month, it's almost the same. Be your authentic self. A lesson learned in the heart of relationship. And be your creative self to bring forth the unique you-ness that is you into the world through your work, your play, your attitude, your very being. In both cases, it's a call to confront internal resistance. It's worth it. It may be scary and it may be hard, but it's worth it. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney. Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.